Well, if I have not had the pleasure to meet you yet, my name is Michael. I am the lead pastor here at the Village Church, and I have the joy to open up God's Word with you. Would you open your Bibles to the book of First Peter, chapter two? First Peter, chapter two. Uh, I want to start off, and I want to answer a question for you. I'm going to put the question on the screen in a moment. But what I would like you to do, um, even throughout the duration of the sermon, is I would love for you to give and write down the first 15 answers, yes, 15, you heard me right, that come to your mind when you hear the question. Now, it might take you a little while, but the first 15, there's really no wrong answers. And what I want you to do at the end of this is I want you to just take a look at the list that you've made. And I want you to evaluate. I want you to see what does it say about you. And then we're going to talk about that at the end of the sermon. So here's the question. I'm going to answer it for you in front of you. And here it is. Who am I? Who am I? Here are my 15, first 15 answers that came to the top of my head. Number one, I am a fueling, which that's my last name, in case you did not know that. I'm a dad. I am a man. I'm a husband. I'm a heterosexual. I am an American. I am a Caucasian. I know you couldn't tell, but I am. I'm an Enneagram 7. Can you, do me, can you humor me for a moment? Are there any other... Any, Enneagram is a personality test. There you go. Are there anyone in this room who's an Enneagram 7? Even wing it, right? We got one. Oh, I, you're awesome. Two. Okay. We got another one. All right. So here's what happened in first service. None. Do you know why? Because Enneagram 7s love to have fun, and, and we like to sleep. So... We wake up and go to the 11 o'clock service. Zero. The fact that there's some in here is awesome. All right. I am ENTP. That's Myers-Briggs. If you can't tell, the E is like extrovert. There you go. All right. ENTP. I'm a teacher. I'm a village churcher. I am a certified headlights technician. When you need me, you'll appreciate it. I am a pastor. I am a musician. I'm a Christian. Uh, According to the girl who wanted me to be her boyfriend in high school, I am, quote, the worst person in the world. Um... If you are really controlling, I am, quote, so annoying. And if you are lighthearted, I am the most fun person you've ever met or something of the sorts. Uh, If you are talking with my uh, nine-year-old, she would tell you I am so bald uh, or so old. My 11-year-old tells me I am so bald. But yesterday at 6.45 in the morning, my son and I were sitting in a a tent. uh, And he said the following words to me. It was just him and I. And he says... Dad, you're the best dad in the universe. I'm going to hold on to that one. That's like right here. I'm just linger. Okay, good. Now, I gave you more than 15, right? Um, I gave you a handful, and I could have gone on, but what I did not put up on here are actually multiple really mean things that throughout the duration of my life, people have spoken over me. I've chosen to leave those off because I don't want a pity party up here. Um, but it's interesting. There, uh, our identity is made up of so many micro-identities. There are so many things that go together to make up who you are as a person. And there's like an indefinite amount of versions of identity that you can put together in this. And then the question is, who are you? Like, write it down and take a good hard look. Who are you? What are some of the most important things about you? Now, in conversations, here's what you're going to find. These are going to be the things that you're going to talk about the most. And if you know me, um, probably 80% of the subject matter that comes out of my mouth is bound up into one of these subjects. And so what is your identity? Who are you? What are the first 15 things that come to your mind? Uh, put those on a paper. Look at them. Now, here's, here's what I want to tell you. Not all identities are created equally, are they? Like some of these, right, there, there are some things that I probably wanted to put on there, but, you know, it's church, so I'm not going to put them on there. 
But there are things that if your list was up here, you'd be like really embarrassed about the fact that it's even on your identity list. Not all identities are created equal. And I want you to hear me when we talk about identity. Every one of us in this room must choose an ultimate identity. Uh, Now, this is in contrast to what we call secondary identities. Your ultimate identity is that which is the most important thing about you. All other identities take second place to this. It is the one that is of highest value to you as a person. That is your ultimate identity. You have to choose one. I'm going to tell you why. Because if you don't choose an ultimate identity, your heart will choose one for you. And I'm here to tell you that your heart and my heart, it is a terrible decision maker. Can someone in this room please just give me an amen on that one? My heart is ridiculous and my heart is addicted to ultimate identities. It is insistent on making good things ultimate things that should never, ever be an ultimate thing. Now, here's what I want to do with you. I want to, I want to give you a, a crash course, a one-on-one on ultimate identity before we get into 1 Peter chapter 2 to kind of set the stage for us. I want to share with you three things about ultimate identity. Number one, ultimate identity is always assigned by your designer. The truest, best, right ultimate identity is assigned by your designer. That God has created you physically, spiritually, relationally, sexually, in every single way, meticulously, and he himself has assigned an identity to every single person, an ultimate identity. Now, the other identities, they're not bad and they're not terrible, okay? But this, this identity that he's going to assign to us, this ultimate identity, is the most important one, and if you miss his, you miss everything. Let's, let's take this deeper. Number one, ultimate identity is always assigned by your designer. Number two... Replacing your ultimate identity with anything else, with anything else, will result in, number one, physiological tension. That your body is not designed by God to put anything else in the ultimate identity placement, except for, I'll just give you the answer now, Jesus. That's it. My identity, my ultimate identity, is I am a follower of Jesus Christ, period, that is it. It's my ultimate identity. And whenever you replace Jesus with anything else, here's what happens to you. Your body actually starts to not work the way it's supposed to work. Discontent, stress, depression, anxiety, all of these have roots in some other things. But for sure, when you replace Jesus with anything else, your physical body inevitably in time will respond. Number two is your spiritual tension will be the result of this which is disconnect from God. Uh, This is that sense that when you put anything else in place of Jesus as your ultimate identity, that your relationship with God will continue to feel more and more distant and disconnected. It's going to result in number three, which is relational tension. We always say broken people do broke things. And when you have anything other than Jesus as your ultimate identity, we're inevitably going to find that it's going to impact our relationships. Anytime something takes the place of Jesus as our ultimate identity, tension arises. This is just the nature of how God has designed us to actually work. Now, number three, if your ultimate identity lets you down, it is soul-crushing. This is why when people feel like God has let them down, it sends them on a downward spiral. Now, does God actually 
ever not fulfill the promises he's made to you? The answer is no, never. He keeps them 100% of the time. Every time you are let down by God, it's because you've transferred something to God that he never took on himself. You've put an expectation on him that he has never, ever, ever once told you that he was going to do for you. But when we feel like God has let us down, it is crushing. And here's what we have learned. Every identity other than Jesus that takes ultimate place in our hearts and our souls will and does fail us. And when they do, it is soul crushing. The only ultimate identity that will never, ever fail you is when Jesus Christ is put in that spot of ultimate identity. This is one-on-one. Now, here's what we have when we get to the book of First Peter. Rome uh, says to the audience of First Peter, we're in the first century, probably late AD 50, maybe early 60s. And Rome will look at all of these Roman citizens in the empire who come from all these different backgrounds, all these different cultures, all these different religions, and Rome will tell them, you can have any ultimate identity that you want until it is time to hail Caesar as God and Lord. In that moment, all your ultimate identities go away, and in that moment, Rome will demand to be your ultimate identity. And so here's what you have in the book of 1 Peter. You have a handful of people who are faithful to Jesus. Rome has overstepped its bounds, and it has demanded ultimate identity from these people. And the Christian has one easy response when anybody tells us to bend the knee to anything or anyone other than Jesus, and it is, yeah, no thank you. Even if they threaten everything we have, our response is, I have one ultimate identity. His name is Jesus, and nothing, nothing can take that place. And so here's what happened. So the early Christians, they found themselves opposed to Rome. Rome opposed to them. And many of them found themselves exiled. They found themselves losing their home. They lost their property. They lost their money. They were kicked out. And what happens in the the book of 1 Peter is that there are all of these exiles or refugees who find themselves in what's called modern-day Turkey in all of these cities. And the apostle Peter is coming to them, and he's bringing them encouragement for these exiles. Now, the audience of 1 Peter, it's not just refugees. The audience of 1 Peter are also believers who were born in these cities and born and raised. And one of the messages that Peter wants to get across to all of them is that it doesn't matter where you come from. You have one ultimate identity, and it is Jesus. You have one ultimate home. It is heaven. You have one ultimate savior and loyalty. It is to God, and that is it. And nothing, nothing should get in the way of that. And Peter is not at all hesitant for one second to look at these people and tell them, if it means you die, do not reject Jesus. Do not even for a moment substitute anything in your ultimate identity at all for Jesus. Because whatever you lose for Christ, he will 100% make it up to you. There will never be one martyr in heaven who gets to heaven and points a finger at Jesus and says, you didn't make this worth it. Never. So whatever he asks you to give up and to sacrifice to keep Jesus as your ultimate identity, collectively as a group of Christians and individually, we say we will not substitute Jesus for anything. And then we have to deal with our heart, which is always creating idols and ultimate identity replacements, right? It takes really good things and everyday things and things we love, and then it puts them in place of Jesus, and it's like, ah, And I'm so glad that Jesus Christ, his blood covers our sins and our idolatry. And then when we find something creeping back into first place, other than Jesus, we take it out and we put it in its rightful place. This is what we do as Christians. 
And this is what Peter's going to try to get across to these people. And, and so here's what we're going to do. Peter's going to give these people a crash course in what it means if you're going to make Jesus your ultimate identity. So if you're taking notes, there are six different things that, Jesus, or that Peter is going to tell them about making Jesus your ultimate identity. Here's number one. The world has already rejected your ultimate identity. It's already rejected it. Here's what he says in verse four. As you come to him, him is Jesus here, a living stone rejected by men. Now he's not yet talking about you. He's talking about Jesus himself. And so here's what he's basically saying to them. If you make Jesus your ultimate identity, they will inevitably do to you what they did to him. I want you to think about this. So the believers, the disciples, the followers of Christ, this was their obsession. I want to think like Jesus. I want to feel and value like Jesus. And I want to live like Jesus. Well, guess what thinking and feeling and valuing and living like Jesus did? It got him killed. And so here's what he's saying. Your ultimate identity, it's already, had been, it's already been rejected. And if you're going to make Jesus your ultimate identity, just on the front end, you need to know this. You're already rejected. They have rejected this entire lifestyle, this entire value system, this entire mindset. They have rejected it as a threat to Roman peace. So if you are truly going to become like Jesus, understand on the front end, it means probably you or someone you love will die. Now, Peter knows this personally. Because when he walked to Jesus, Jesus promised him that Peter later in life, when he was old, was going to die by crucifixion, which is a Roman method of execution. And he also let him know and made it clear to him that he was going to die because of his affiliation with Jesus. And so here's what Peter knows. Peter knows that Roman persecution is going to amp up as he gets older and people, including himself, are going to die. And history tells us exactly that, that, that Peter died by crucifixion. This verse goes on in verse four. He says, speaking of Jesus still, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. I mean, who cares what the world thinks of Jesus? If the almighty God of the universe looks down on him and says, Jesus Christ is precious and valuable to me. it takes guts to, to go up to a strong man and say, your wife is ugly. To dishonor and disrespect somebody with unbelievable strength and to speak negatively about somebody so precious to them. And here's what he's saying. Jesus, in the eyes of the Father, is chosen and precious and unbelievably valuable. And believers, you have put your ultimate identity in that which is precious to God. That's going to be a winner for you. But there's a converse statement here, which is, it is a significant level of foolishness to dishonor and disrespect he whom is most precious to the almighty God of this universe. And so I just have fair warning for people who don't just reject Jesus, but, but speak maliciously against him. You are speaking critically of that which is the most beloved to God, the Father Almighty. Think twice before you dishonor the king and his emissaries. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. The world, number one, has already rejected your ultimate identity. Number two, 
When Jesus becomes your ultimate identity, you become a part of something eternal. Here's what he says in verse 5. You yourselves, now he's switching from Jesus to the people, you are like living stones, and you are being built up as a spiritual house. Now, this is not a a house like you go just to live in. Uh, This is actually a temple. And temples exist for two reasons, really. They exist for people to come and meet God, and they exist as a place where people worship God. Now, don't get me wrong. You guys are all really important, and I love you all. And individually, you were wonderful. But you yourself are a stone. And when we come together, we are a temple. And we become a place where people meet God and where worship of God happens. Uh, I think it's an interesting idea. I've been thinking about this uh, metaphor. Um, I imagine I've been thinking about um, modern American worship. And I'm not talking about worship styles, just so you know. I'm not even talking about lyrical content. I'm more talking about the attitudes of American Christians as worshipers. And here's what I imagine. I imagine you have an American Christian going before a royal king of the universe. I don't know. And uh, they go up and the king is in his robe and all of his glory and all of his splendor. And they say, yeah, the music over here doesn't quite do it for me. I'm going to go home and take a nap yeah, I'm not going to go to worship today because I'm not feeling it. Or you go in with like this sense of entitlement. Yeah, you know, King, I don't really like the musicians you chose or I don't like the priests you chose or man, your, your garments aren't quite doing it for me. Like, would anybody ever do that? No. But like somehow in this temple, we have this idea of entitlement when we come to worship. And I've just been pondering this. I'm like, where did this ever come from? How did the people of God become so entitled that worship is something we can be bored with, or it's something that we can come in and just say, eh, I'm not feeling it. It doesn't matter if you feel it. The king deserves worship, and we are his temple, and temples are made for worship and adoration. This is just what we do. This is what we do. When Jesus becomes your ultimate identity, you become a part of something eternal. We get to be part of the church. Now, the church is the only, I don't have a better name for it, so just go with me, organization that will last forever and ever into eternity. You can, you can be affiliated with any business you love. You can be an Apple guy, a PC guy. You can be a whatever, you name it. You can find your identity or be a part of some club or whatever else. Every one of them at the second coming of Jesus, and most likely before, are going to be gone forever and nobody will care. There is literally one group of people that will last into an eternity, and that is the people of God, the church. And when you make Jesus your ultimate identity, you are no longer a silo. You are part, you are a stone as a part of a group of stones, Christians, believers who make up a temple, and we are the place where people go to meet with God, learn about God, and to worship God. And I think that should inform how we understand even what it means to like come in and be a part of a local congregation. That we are here for the adoration, for the praise, for the declaration of the excellencies of the Most High King. Number three, your identity comes with a profound responsibility. He's going to take this temple imagery. He's going to go a little bit deeper, and here's what he says to them. You yourselves, like living stones, you're being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices, acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In verse 9, he calls them a royal priest, priesthood. 
A priest's primary function is to help people worship God appropriately. Now, if you were going to be a priest, uh, you may not know this about the priestly office, but you had to be strong and shredded. Let me put it this way. They are, they are reining in and killing not just small, but very large animals. Uh, in fact, there was an age limit on the, on the priest, around 50 years old, because the amount of strength and endurance that it required to be a priest was strong. Um, yesterday, we went hunting with some friends. I did, took my son with me. Uh, we didn't kill anything, but one of the guys with us did, and he got a deer, and we had to carry this deer, me and this guy, drag it. It was only like 15 or 20 feet, and like my whole body hurt. I was like, well, wow, this thing is so heavy. And uh, it was just a really, it just it struck me. I was like, wow, these priests were dealing with carcasses larger and bloodier than even this thing. The amount of strength and endurance, right? And some of you are like, that's so disgusting. I don't know if I respect you anymore. I'm st- <laughs> Do you eat meat? Okay, it came from somewhere. Um, but I was struck by the strength that was required for these men. And I was struck by this because I was like, wow, these guys. And, and it was a lot of work. And, and then here's what you find. They were offering sacrifices. They were offering sacrifices for the people. Now, did the sacrifices accomplish anything with regard to the people's sins, actually? No, the blood of bulls and goats will never, ever, ever take away the sins of the world. But then Jesus comes. And all of these sacrifices were foreshadows of the ultimate sacrifice that would come. And this ultimate sacrifice would cleanse perfectly the people. Now, the priests had a ton of work they needed to do before they could even represent the people. They had to be cleansed. They had to have the right clothes. Everything had to be purified and clean, etc. Now, here's what happens when you come to Christ. The moment you trust in Christ, despite your biblical knowledge... Despite your maturity, despite how awesome you are going to church, at serving, at tithing, at spiritual disciplines, whatever, you now are a priest, and you have significant responsibilities before God to be a lead worshiper, period. And being a priest wasn't always easy. Being a priest wasn't always convenient, but this was the calling of a priest, And so every one of us in this room have the responsibility and obligation to be a worshiper. Now, here's the beautiful thing about being a priest. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you are so thoroughly, totally cleansed that you now are clean enough to go into the most holy place of the temple where no priest could go except for once a year and that without an unbelievable amount of cleansing by blood and other things that every one of us are so thoroughly purified that we have full access to the throne room of God, that our sin has been so dealt with, with such finality that you can go pray to God, enter the throne room anytime you want. All right, time travel conundrum. You ready? You have the chance to go back in time to 1000 AD. You're a professing believer in Jesus Christ. You have the Holy Spirit. Can you go walk into the temple, into the Holy of Holies? I don't know. I think you can. You guys can debate about that all you want in your community group. Sound good? There's no right or wrong answer to that. Like, but if you have the Holy Spirit and you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, you are perfectly clean and nothing stands between you and entrance into the most holy place. And here's what he says. He looks at them and says, you guys are priests and you have priestly responsibilities. When you make Jesus your ultimate identity, 
it comes with a profound, awesome, joyful responsibility to worship and to lead with the people of God in worship. We are not consumers. We are priests with the weighty responsibility of worship. We have to kill consumerism because it is flat out the opposite of our identity. Number four, your ultimate identity is inherently communal. Here's what he says in verse nine. He says, you're a chosen race. You're a nation. You are a people. Now, throughout the Bible, God has plucked out a nation, the nation of Israel, to be his people, to be his representatives, to tell people of his goodness, of his nature, of his character, of his glory. God has always pulled out a people to represent him. And when Jesus came, here's what he basically did. He said, listen, the people I'm using that represent me are the church, and they are made up of people from every different tribe and tongue and nation and language. And what you have in here in the church is you now have a communal identity. To be a follower of Christ is now to be connected with people from all over the world, all throughout history. Now, we, we are one local church, and in the New Testament, Jesus institutes local churches under the authority of elders and deacons and, and, and pastors, and our job is to equip people for the ministry of the saints. It's Ephesians 4, 11. Like, there's an actual responsibility of the local church. But I want you to hear me. Village church, is it going to be in heaven as we know it, village church? No, it's going to be long gone. There's going to be one church. It's going to be the people of God, all those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And we are connected to people all over the world so that when people in China and North Korea who are enduring, probably some of them worse than what these people are dealing with in First Peter, Peter, when we hear about their plight, their plight is our plight. They're not just another group of Christians over there. They are our people. We are one people. We are one nation. We are one race. And the word race is used a little differently in their context, but that's the, that's the concept. Your ultimate identity is inherently communal, and you are brought together with people from all over the world. It's interesting. If you go to another country and you find somebody who speaks your language, you ever find you're like, oh, you're American. Oh my gosh, we can talk, right? You know the satisfaction that you have? Or like Canadians, they come here and like, oh, you're Canadian. You totally get my accent. Like, oh, it's so satisfying. This is what it's like for the people of God. When you meet people from different countries, it's a profoundly interesting experience. When you share an ultimate identity with somebody from a different culture, all of those things are not as important. What is most important is your shared ultimate identity. And we find ourselves having a shared ultimate identity with people all over the world right now. It's a beautiful privilege, and it comes with being a follower of Jesus Christ. Number five, your ultimate identity is inherently awesome. I couldn't think of a better word. I was like, uh, this is just awesome. That was what was going through my brain when I was preparing this. It says, you are chosen, you are holy, and you are a possession. You're chosen like Jesus, which is communicating that you are of unbelievable personal value to Jesus. The best way that I could help you understand it is if you've had a kid, you understand how valuable they are to you. Multiply that by 100, and now you understand how God feels personally about you. You are holy. You are cleansed by the blood of Christ. You may struggle with sin now, but legally you're declared righteous and pure before God, and there is nothing that stands between you and access to the ears, the mind, the heart of God. You have access. You're a possession, which means that you are deeply, deeply personal. There's even a a hint in this context here of like slavery. And the idea here is that you were a slave 
and you were ransomed, bought by God, and now you're his slave. But here's what he does. He frees you. He frees you to be who you really are, which is in Christ, and to have Jesus to be your ultimate identity. And at the end of the day, if you are in Christ, if you've placed your faith in him and your ultimate identity is in him, you are chosen, you are holy, and you are God's possession. Lastly, number six. Having Jesus as my ultimate identity is the greatest honor of my life. You think about Billy Graham, he's had so many incredible honors in his life. He's met every spiritual leader, every president, every you name it. And 95 years old, somehow the guy made it to the end of his life without scandal. That's a miracle in and of itself, given his platform. And if you looked at Billy Graham and you said, what has been the greatest honor of your life? And he would say, knowing Jesus. Jesus is the greatest honor of my life. Listen to what Peter says to these people. He says, I'm honored to be associated with him. He says, for it, for it stands in scripture. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone. A cornerstone. This is Jesus. We've talked about this. Chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's a a quote. Now he's going to explain the quote in a sentence. Here's what he says. So the honor is for you who believe. You are not entitled to worship the king. You are honored to worship the king. You're not entitled to be here, to be with God's people, whether it's in a house church in China or North Korea, or whether it's underground, whether it's in whatever country, it doesn't matter. When the people of God come together to worship him, all of the imperfections that we bring to the table, it is just a pure and sheer honor. And we forget this, don't we? I am chief of forgetting this. It is my honor. It is the honor of my lifetime to be affiliated, associated with Jesus Christ and to have him be my ultimate identity. Verse 8 goes on. I'm honored to be rejected like Jesus. Now, this is so weird, but you've got to go back in the first century. Christians were persecuted all the time. And so when you're, when you're persecuted and the people you love are being persecuted, you have to think very differently about it. And here's how they would think about it. This apparently was really motivating because the New Testament authors talk about persecution in this really interesting way. They're like this. Well, Jesus suffered, so it's kind of cool that you get to be like him in that way. And they're like, yeah. That is kind of cool. And that was actually meaningful for these people. And so they looked to Jesus because what they wanted is they wanted to think like Jesus and feel like Jesus and live like Jesus. And so they actually, when they went through persecution and suffering, they were like, you know what? It's kind of an honor to be on the rejection side because now I get to become more like Jesus. And that was how they thought about it. Here's what he says. He says, but for those who don't believe, the stone who is Jesus that the builders rejected it's become the cornerstone. Ha! It's kind of like a big practical joke of God. Oh, you rejected Jesus? Now he's the most important stone in the most important building in the entire universe. Bam, right? And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus was rejected and offended. And guess what happened to the first century believers? They were by and large rejected and offended. Now he's talking about unbelievers. He says they, they stumble because they disobeyed the word. They have put something other than Jesus as their ultimate identity. Jesus isn't even in their categories, to be honest. And they did this because they were destined to do so. This is the destiny that happens for you when you put anything other than Jesus as your ultimate identity. You begin to crumble as a person. God has not wired us and designed us to have anything other than Jesus to be our ultimate identity. He goes on, I'm honored to proclaim his excellencies. Verse nine, that you may proclaim 
the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our joy, our honor, our privilege is to come before the king and to declare his excellencies, the goodness, the righteousness, the holiness, the the things about him that are unlike any other being in this universe, that we are designed and created. In fact, it is our honor, whether it is in prayer or whether it is in singing, to declare and to proclaim the excellencies of the most high God. And so when we come together in worship and the songs are declaring things about God or truths about our heart, we proclaim as if it is our honor and our privilege, not as if we are entitled. Verse 10, he says this, once you were not a people, Rome rejected you. But God, God intervenes and God doesn't just accept you, but chooses you and brings you into his family and makes you a son. And he says this, but now you are God's people. You are the church and every one of you, you're a living stone and you are a priest. You are worshipers and we get the privilege to come before the king and to proclaim his excellencies. Once you had not received mercy, before you came to Christ, there's a word the Bible uses to talk about the non-Christian's relationship with God. The word is enmity. Uh, It means hostility or really harsh tension. Uh, That there is a reality that before you come to Christ, this enmity is your defining mark of the relationship that you have with God. You can tell yourself that your relationship with God is wonderful, but if you have not trusted in Christ, what you have with God is enmity and you need reconciliation, which only ever happens through faith in Jesus. That's it. And so he says to them, once you had not received mercy. You remember that before you came to Christ. Remember everybody in First Peter, they're first generation Christians by and large. But now you have received mercy. So at the end of our sermons, if you're new with us, we close with so what's. And I have two major so what's I want to share with you. First, what I want to do is I want to talk to those of you in the room who are not Christians. Um, It is not uncommon that people are dragged here to church with their husbands or their wives or their kids or your parents dragged you here and you want to be gone. You're counting down the minutes um, and you, you want to go eat lunch. I totally understand that. But here's my so what for you, non-Christian. Will I place my faith in Jesus today and make him my ultimate identity? Now, you need to hear me on this. There is not one ounce of me that believes I have the ability to coerce you or make you believe a single thing. All I'm doing right now is putting the question in front of you. You were designed in such a way that Jesus is supposed to be your ultimate identity. This is how God made you spiritually, emotionally, physically, sexually, you name it. You were designed for Jesus to be your ultimate identity. Will you trust in Jesus Christ as your God and Savior? Now let me share with you what I have found over and over and over again to be one of the primary hesitations that makes people not want to trust in Christ. The older we get, is it harder for us to be wrong? The answer is, yeah, nobody likes to be wrong. It's fine. You can acknowledge that. Like, especially when you have kids, I'm never wrong, right? It's a rule. What happens when people, as they get older, when they decide or make the decision to make Jesus their ultimate identity and to trust in Christ? The reason people are hesitant to do it is because of this. 
Because the moment I proclaim Jesus as my new ultimate identity, I am saying that every single thing I have believed up until this point is wrong. I am saying that the priority, the greatest priority of my life has been the wrong priority. And the older you get, the more years they are behind you of that reality. And I'm telling you, people are way too prideful. They would rather die telling people they're right than admit at 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 or 90 years old, I was wrong. And honestly, at least I can speak for this room and the vast majority of families that I know, if Jesus really is God, and you're not going to make him your ultimate identity because you are afraid of being wrong, that's just pride. And I'm telling you this, you will never regret making Jesus your ultimate identity and telling everybody else that you were wrong and he should have been there the whole time. I get that there's a little bit of embarrassment there. But if it is true, then it is a decision that it would be foolish not to make. If Jesus truly is the son of God with power, make him your ultimate identity. I had somebody come up to me in the first service and I share this exact thing. And they said, I have been hesitant to come to Christ because of exactly what you said. I'm afraid that I will have to admit to everybody else that I have been wrong the whole time. And all I have to say is, then trust in Christ and overcome your pride. How sad would it be to dishonor the most precious one of God the Father, Jesus Christ, because you're afraid of looking dumb. So maybe today you've never trusted in Christ, but you know today you are supposed to trust in Christ because you believe Yes, you're afraid of what other people think. Who cares about what they think? Because ultimately everything passes away. What we care about most is what God thinks. I just want to tell you today, if you've never trusted in Christ, get rid of all the pride. It just doesn't matter. Nobody's going to think less of you. In fact, their respect for you will go up because you will finally put the right thing in the right place, which is what everybody wants for you. I want to talk to Christians for a moment. Is Jesus my ultimate identity? You're designed for that, yes, but practically on the ground, is he? What most competes for my ultimate identity? By and large, there are going to be some like sinful, bad things, and you've already identified those. You already have a wrestling match with those things. Actually, the most dangerous part of ultimate identity are the good things that want to leave their place and become ultimate things. And those are the things that we need to identify because they can be really, really sneaky. Sometimes we're able to put them into our, in their place, but there are some good things that we need to eradicate from our life because we don't have the power or self-control yet to contain them. They're so ambitious and so wanting to have that ultimate spot, and only you can make those decisions. But is Jesus my ultimate identity? What most competes for my ultimate identity? All right, so at the beginning, I shared uh, the following with you about ultimate identity. We said this, ultimate identity is always assigned by your designer, which brings us to God's voice. What are some of the things that God says to you who have made Jesus your ultimate identity? Again, there are so many critical voices. There are so many ugly voices. There are so many mean voices. And I want to kind of break through this because what Peter is trying to do with these exiles is tell them who they really are. Because when your whole life is taken away from you, all your secondary identities are threatened or or erased, you need to know 
is my ultimate identity secure? And I love the way that God just speaks through Peter to these broken people. And here's some of the things that God says to these people. God says, I am his possession. I am beloved. I am his son. I am forgiven. I am free. I am called. I am family. I am a priest. I am royal. I am holy. I am chosen. I am a worshiper. And we're only one and a half chapters through the book. That God is relentless about making sure you understand your identity and what that means for you. And this God loves you and has made you a priest to worship him. What a joy, what an honor. We, it is our honor. You hear me pray this probably if you pay attention to my prayers. You know, sometimes in pastoral prayers you zone out. You will hear me say eight out of ten times, it is our honor and privilege to worship you. It comes from this text. It comes from this heartbeat. Because I never want us to forget, it is our honor and it is our privilege to come before the high king of the universe and to declare his excellencies as his priests, cleansed and forgiven and righteous and uncondemned with access to the holy of holies and the throne room of God. We have the joy to come before him and worship As we turn to communion, all of this is only available to you through Jesus, and that is it. There is no other way. And so if you have made Jesus your ultimate identity, not by being good, but through faith in Christ, believing that you're a sinner, believing that he died on the cross for your sins, believing that he rose again from the dead, believing he's coming back, I want to invite you, I don't care what church you go to, if you trust in Jesus, I want to invite you to partake of communion with us. Uh, Maybe you're here and you are not yet ready to trust in Christ. This is not for you. And so we ask people to do is if you've never trusted in Christ, um, let the elements pass and don't partake because to partake is to declare Jesus as your God. And if you're just not ready, we totally understand. That is not a decision we can pressure you into. That is a decision you have to make between you and the Lord. Uh, The way we do communion here is very simple. Um, We're going to have a time of silence. My encouragement to you would be to be grateful (laughs) and to speak honoring words to our most excellent king, to be thankful to him. Some of you might have some things that you need to confess right now. Bring those before him, and I want to remind you of what God's word says. For every confessed sin you have, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are cleansed. You are a priest. You have full access. Whatever your struggle or stupidity or sin is, It is forgiven, and even though it is real in your life, it does not stand between you and God. So confess it, say it, and then just relish in the grace and the freedom and the forgiveness that God offers you. So we're going to have a time of silence, opportunity for you to pray. Um, We're going to sing. We're going to worship together. We're going to honor and proclaim our God's excellencies. While that's happening, we're going to pass out the communion cups. If you take them and hold on to them, uh, we're going to partake together at the end of the song as a symbol of our unity in Jesus. Sound good? All right, let's have a time of just silence where we can talk with God.